Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes. Today is Friday, September 30th, and we are going over the book of Nahum, and we are in part four. So it is a three-chapter book, and we have gone over it for the last three weeks, and we're going to finish it up tonight. I don't care how long we got to stay. If we have to order in pizza and make a second pot of coffee, we're doing it. We're getting through this book. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. God, we love you greatly, and uh, God, you are so good to us. You have all the wisdom and the knowledge and the power. You have so much patience with us. You are our creator and our savior, and God, I am so grateful that we can come to you in prayer. And Lord, I want to ask that you'd please forgive us of any shortcomings, any sins, anything that's going to keep us from being close to you tonight. Lord, help us to do your will and be right with you. God, thank you that we can get together on a Friday night and study the Bible. Thank you for the great amount of rain that we got uh, these last couple days. It's been really good for us. God, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the people that come to study the Word of God. And Lord, I just ask that you would please help us tonight. Please speak through me. Help us to have a good, fun time. Help us to learn something about the Bible, about you. But God, also, please speak through me. God, we want you here. Uh, me just talking about a book is a waste of time if you're not present. So God, please uh, be here. Give us a soft heart. Help us to hear the part of the message that you need us to hear that's good for us. And God, please help us to be more like you in this next week. We love you, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Nahum, part four, we're going to read verses two through seven in chapter three. Nahum chapter three, verses two through seven. Let's read those, and then we'll jump in and go through this verse by verse, and we'll see what we learn. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain, and there is a mul and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon the corpses. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? We are going to get into a little bit of very colorful and graphic imagery as we talk about Nineveh in these first couple of verses. Last week, we covered verse one, where we talked about how Nineveh is a bloody city. And we went over several of the kings of Nineveh and how wicked and cruel they were and how uh, bloodthirsty they were. In verse two, what are we talking about in verse two? 
We are talking about the Babylonian army. Very good, Wayne. It is the Babylonians. The noise of the army advancing should terrify you. That's what God's saying. When you hear these guys coming, it should terrify you. Let me ask you this. Do you think Nineveh was terrified? Okay, we got all no's. Anyone say yes? Got one yes in the back? It's okay. I don't know the answer. I mean, I wasn't there. Uh, I think the answer is no. And I'm going to use verses 8 through 10 to explain this when we get there. But let me ask you this. For those of you that think, no, they were not terrified, why were they not terrified? Moses? Because of the wall. They were never defeated. You got it. <laughs> we have an undefeated, you got it. We have an undefeated record. Uh, we persecute and destroy and strike fear into the hearts of every nation around us. Uh, we are the ones that people are terrified of. We are, you got it. We are the ones that scare people. We don't get scared. Yep. Okay. No reason for them to be terrified. <clears throat> Uh, there is a psalm that I think we brought up before. Uh, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we we put our faith in the fear of the Lord. We trust in the fear of the Lord. It, it's a psalm. I forget what it is, and I'm butchering the verse. But remember, that's what the Ninevites were doing. They were trusting in their walls. They were trusting in their fortifications. They did not understand that God was coming for them. And that's what we got to remember. And it's hard for us to wrap our head around this. And it was also hard for the nation of Israel to understand this because they said, wait a minute, you're using the Babylonians to do your work and they're going to have a real hard time in just a little while because after Nineveh was destroyed, it wasn't too long till the Nineveh or till the Babylonians set their sights on Jerusalem. And then God told Jeremiah, hey, guess what? The Babylonians are my hand of judgment, and you need to tell the nation of Israel they need to give up. Let me tell you, that did not go over well. So I don't think the, uh, the Ninevites were terrified, um, but again, I was not there. When was the exact moment they were terrified? Go ahead. When the wall came down. We, we read about that in weeks past. When their walls fell down, all of a sudden, everything changed. That's how long it took. I think they did, but again, I wasn't there. That seems to be what the Bible explains, is that people were dropping dead of fear. So you should be able to hear the chariots of the Babylonian army from a long way off. In Nahum chapter 2, verse 3, uh, God said that their chariots will shake the ground. Now, in verse 3, this explains in four different ways the great number of people slain. It says there is none end of the corpses. There are so many dead that numbering them was a waste of time. That's what God was saying. And remember, we, we don't know the exact number of the Ninevites, but we do know the number uh, that were in the city no more than, say, 60 years ago. Where do we find that number? And, and I can't say the number that was in the city 60 years ago. 
we knew the number of children that couldn't tell their left from their right. Where do we find that number? <laughs> Good, Wayne. It was the book of Jonah. God says that there were how many children that didn't know their left hand from their right? Moses? Nope. Wash? Very good, 120,000 uh, that did not know their left hand from their right. So we're talking about uh, children. I don't know exactly what the age is, but that gave us an idea of the total number of people that was in the city of Nineveh. So remember, everybody dies. They, they do take some people slaves, and it will explain that, but by and large, everybody dies. Certainly, all the women died, all the children died, most of the men died. They might have taken some women for slaves, but by and large, you wanted uh, the men who were, you know, um, fighting age, good shape, because you were going to work them. You, wanted, you want your slaves to make you money. That's the purpose for having slaves, because you don't want to do the work, right? You don't want to reshingle the roof. Get the slave up there from Nineveh. Okay, so, you know, you're not going to have children. Yeah. All right, now understand this. Verses four through seven are all together. They're, they're all related. They are related to the description of the sins of Nineveh and the punishment which is fitting. So bear with me as we go through verses four through seven. <clears throat> I just want you to understand that you have to take them in a, in a small group here. Otherwise, that don't make sense. What is Nineveh described as in verse four? Go ahead. What's the word? So uh, Nineveh is described as a whore or a prostitute. And who is her victim? Yeah. Yeah. Ready? Ready for this, everyone? Prostitution is not a victimless crime. <laughs> it is bad for people. Who's the victim here? In verse 4, it explains it. Yep, the nations and the families. Okay, so the nations that... Uh, uh, the nations around uh, Nineveh and the families were the ones that were affected through her whoredoms, and her witchcrafts. Now, Assyria often conquered nations solely to plunder them. Assyria was a nation that took advantage of everyone that it came near. It thought only of money and pleasure and gave no thought for morality. Nineveh was the nation that nobody trusted. It was the nation that you couldn't have your diplomats go to and make a deal and haggle over something and trust that they would fulfill their side. They were willing to take advantage of any nation around them to enrich themselves. They didn't care about their reputation. Nineveh was trying to build itself up to be a major center for trade, for the arts, for pagan worship, and it was successful. It was, it was 
if not the biggest city in the world. It was one of them. And it certainly was a major thoroughfare uh, and a center for commerce. Nineveh had no thought of who it hurted so long as it gained money, pleasure, and power. And because of this, all the nations around Nineveh hated it. Nobody liked Nineveh. But you have to understand, in the same way, the prostitute, when we use this analogy that God gives us, the prostitute is not concerned with the damage done. The prostitute is only concerned with the money that is made. It doesn't matter if diseases are spread. It doesn't matter if families are destroyed. It doesn't matter what ruin is done so long as there is financial gain. So God is comparing the city of Nineveh to a prostitute because of whoredoms and witchcraft. Now, in verse 5, God says that he hates the whoredoms of Nineveh and he is against them. How does God say he's going to punish Nineveh in verse 5? Yep, he is going to show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. How is he going to show the nations the nakedness? Now, keep in mind, he is still comparing Nineveh to an individual, and he's explaining the ruin that that individual causes and the punishment that that individual is going to receive. So God is using that as an analogy for the whole city. It says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face. Now, this is graphic, but what God is explaining here is that he will march this prostitute through the streets naked and her nakedness will be revealed to the nations. So the prostitute, which is Nineveh, will have her skirt pulled up over her face and her nakedness will be revealed to the nations. So what is the what is going to be the result of that type of punishment? What is Nineveh going to feel? Shame. Okay, so Nineveh is going to understand and feel shame rather than the attitude that it used to have, which is, I don't care who gets hurt. I am just in it for pleasure and money. Now, keep in mind, God is not doing this to any individual. He's using it as an analogy to explain what he is going to do to Nineveh. So like a prostitute, Nineveh dressed herself with lavish adornments and lived in luxury by tempting and deceiving not individuals, but the nations around her. Now her splendor will be replaced by shame. She will be like a prostitute who is stripped naked and made to walk in the streets. Those whom she deceived and robbed will now mock her. So you can see that God is, he's very descriptive. 
And he's explaining to Nineveh, this is going to be really bad. This is going to be a horrible experience. You are going to get what's coming to you. Verse 6. Now, it gets worse. <laughs> For a, follow me, this is not from experience, this is just my understanding of the trade. For a prostitute to be successful, there needs to be some level of attraction. Can we all agree? Right? I mean, that's the basic idea. We all know that I don't have a future in prostitution. Just not that pretty to look at. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So what is God going to do to Nineveh in verse 6? Yes. God is going to cast abominable filth upon her and make her vile. Now, I'm going to tell you that I searched pretty hard to try to define abominable filth, and I could not figure out what God was talking about. So we can leave it up to our imaginations of the most, whatever, disgusting substance that, yeah, that there is. I would imagine, I mean, if I, and, and keep in mind, when God wants to desecrate something, and understand that God does order the desecration of things. When there's a pagan temple, when there is a pagan grove where people perform sacrifices to pagan gods and they worship pagan gods and they're, you know, killing the children and drinking their blood and doing all these horrible things, God says, you are going to desecrate that. You are going to make that so filthy and disgusting that the pagans won't even use that land again to perform their ceremonies. So they would, throughout the Bible, we find they will do several things. One of the things they will do is they will murder the pagan priests and they will heap up their corpses there. And that will usually desecrate a place. Um, for some reason, bones will often do it. They will kill the pagan priests and the pagan worshipers and burn their bodies and heap their bones up on it. Again, you know, these are, these are ideas that are unfamiliar to me. I've never seen a pagan temple cast down by God. I, I think it would be, you know, interesting to have been there and seen that. But something else they will do. There's a substance that will desecrate an area, and that is feces. Yep. Poop. It's poop. So there is at least one example in the Bible where one uh, king of Israel went and set up an outhouse on top of a pagan altar so that people would literally defecate all over it to make sure that it was never used again. And that was actually uh, discovered. An archaeologist discovered that. It was really, yeah, something else. Now, <clears throat> whatever the disgusting substance you can think of is, while this prostitute who was stripped naked and sent through the street to be mocked and ridiculed, also vile, abominable filth was thrown on her. I don't know what that was. But what would the result be? P 
people would consider that prostitute disgusting, unattractive, filthy. The idea is the prostitute is now out of business, right? No one is looking at that individual the way they used to. Now, again, remember, none of this is literally being done to an individual. God is making an analogy. God says that Nineveh will never be able to take advantage of the nations around them again. Nineveh is laid to waste. God asks the question, who will bemoan her? In other words, and this is the question I have for you all, who will mourn the destruction of Nineveh? No one. In verse 7, who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? Who is going to mourn Nineveh? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one is going to be concerned. All right, <clears throat> let's read verses 8 through 10. Picks up a little bit. Art thou better than populous? No. That was situate among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength and it was infinite. Put and Lubim were thy helpers. Yet was she carried away, she went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her. Honorable men and all her great men were bound in chains. So God changes gears, and he's asking Nineveh a question. In verse 8, God asked the question, Are thou better than populous? No. That is a city God is describing. He describes it as being in the area of northeastern Africa. He describes it as being uh, around uh, rivers and water and a sea. And I don't know exactly what city the Bible is talking about here. One of the problems with cities, you find, is that cities change names. So you had a city in Russia called St. Petersburg, founded by Peter the Great, and then it was taken over and it was named Leningrad. And then after that, it was taken over again and it was renamed Stalingrad. And isn't it back to St. Petersburg again? So depending on the timeline, your cities have different names. So I do not know what city this is. There's a little bit of debate ab about it. Um, Alexandria, Egypt sits up against the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this makes sense when reading verse 8. It says her wall was from the sea. The problem is that Alexandria didn't exist at the time. It was founded in 331 by Alexander the Great. We're back in the uh, 600 to 625 or 630 uh, BC. So we, I really don't see that that could possibly be the case. And it was a very, it was a much smaller, more insignificant city at that time. Many others think it was Thebes. 
Now, I don't have a map of Egypt with me, and I didn't want to try to draw one because I'm not a very good artist. But Thebes, if you go up the Nile, remember the Nile flows north. It's one of only two major rivers uh, that flow north so on Earth. So the Nile flows north. So whenever you're talking about Egypt, they talk about it backwards, meaning they talk about going up Egypt is south because you're going up the Nile, whereas we would think going up Egypt as going north, okay, which is backwards than the way they describe it. Either way, it doesn't matter. I just, I don't even know why I brought that up. Thebes is about 400 miles upriver, which is to the south of Alexandria, which, which is uh, a, a coastal port on the Mediterranean Sea. But where Thebes is, and if you look up an aerial view of Thebes, especially ancient, uh, you find that the river split and the city was surrounded by the Nile on both sides. It was called the City of 100 Gates. And Thebes was well-defended, uh, it had strong allies, but nevertheless, it was conquered and the people were taken captive. And this was done by Ashurbanipal, uh, an Assyrian king, back in 663 BC. So when God, through Nahum, is asking the folks in Nineveh, are thou better than populous? No. And he explains the city he was talking about. It says, even though it was great, Thebes had lots of allies surrounding the city that liked Thebes and were ready to come to its defense. And it was a very strong, well-defended city, great big army, lots of chariots. And in verse 10, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets and they cast lots for her honorable men and all her great men were bound in chains. So what Nahum is saying is, do you, Nineveh, think you are better than the great city Thebes, who was well defend, uh, uh, easily defendable, uh, had a great army, yet what happened? It was overthrown and it was cut down. Don't think that we can't do that to you. So God is comparing Nineveh to another great city that everyone knows about. And the Ninevites especially knew about Thebes because it was only 30 years ago that their king overthrew it. So this is a city that makes sense to them when Nahum is describing it, saying, look, better, stronger guys than you have been taken down. So don't think that you are... Don't think that you are safe. Uh, the Assyrians are reminded of this because of the greatness of Thebes. The leadership of the conquerors would cast lots for the honorable men who were taken into slavery. We read about that in verse 10. They cast lots for her honorable men and all her great men were bound in chains. It was customary that when the city was taken over and they, whoever wasn't dead and they separated and said, we're going to take these folks as slaves, 
the chief officers in the army would cast lots for the slaves. So they would have them all penned up somewhere and the guys would literally roll dice and, you know, or rock, paper, scissor it. And they're like, okay, it's my turn. I want, I want him. He looks like a good, strong guy. You're over here on this side. And they would divvy up the people. Uh, and that's how they did it. So that's what Nahum is describing in verse 10. That's what happened in this great city. All right, let's read verses 11 through 15. Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid. Thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fur, or sorry, the fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee waters for the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locust. All right, let's read. Let's look at verse 11. Nineveh, being drunken here in verse 11, may be speaking to their pride, that they're acting foolishly. Then they will see the strength of the enemy and their attitude changes in verse 11. Now they want a place to hide and they want to strengthen their defenses. As we read, thou shalt seek strength because of the enemy. So all of a sudden, Nineveh starts to get the idea that this enemy is a serious one and now they're not so cocky. In verse 12, how successful will their defenses be? It'll be like fig trees. In what way? What about the fig trees? You got it. Has anyone here ever picked? We've all gone apple picking once, right? We've gone to an apple orchard and picked fruit. Anyone ever pick peaches or apricots or any, you know, we've all done that, right? We live in Grand Junction and Fruit and Palisade. There's plenty of fruit here. <coughs> Have you ever picked ripe fruit that's ready to eat how hard do you have to pull on that fruit yeah you just touch it okay my son moses worked at an orchard and a fruit stand this summer he can tell you when fruit is ready to come off the tree you walk by it and sneeze and it falls to the ground it's just it's ready when it's ripe that's the way god designed it that's the stuff that just boop, comes right off in your hand you're ready to eat it God is describing the defenses of the Ninevites. God is really descriptive. They are going to be, their strongholds shall be like fig trees with ripe figs. God says, you just walk up to the branch, give it a shake, and all the figs just fall on the ground because they're ripe and ready to go. He says, that's what your defenses are going to be like. God goes over and over many times and describes various parts of Nineveh. And he uses very colorful analogies that everyone understands. Verse 13, 
God compares the soldiers of Nineveh to women. Why? No one wants to answer. Everyone's scared. Okay. That's not what God's talking about. Although we do know that, right? Physically speaking, you put any man and any woman next to each other, there's a difference in strength. Okay. That's why we have separate sports for boxing and MMA, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and weightlifting and whatnot. They're, they're, we're made differently. Men are made to be uh, mules working in the field all day. Okay. But let's go back in time. We're not talking about today. What's different from a woman in the days of Nineveh, 630 BC, and a soldier? Let me ask you this. Today, can women serve in the front lines of the military? Yeah. Okay. In America, they do. Did they back then? No. Okay. They did not have training. Yes, that is one thing that was done. That's why no one wanted to answer because no one wanted the woman in the room to throw something at them. <laughs> Understand, let me ask you this. Back in the days of Nineveh, when they fell, were the women armed? No. Were the women trained in military combat? No, that's why God is describing the soldiers of Nineveh as women. He says, they're not, you guys aren't ready to fight. You're, you're, yeah, you're, you are facing an enemy that are trained killers. And you guys are all going to act like unarmed, untrained civilians that have never been in combat. That's what he's describing. They, they relied on their wall. Yep. Nope, they weren't ready. No one's ever going to get through this wall. No, you, so, well, we're talking hypotheticals now, so who knows. But the, the, the big takeaway for the whole book of Nahum is God said it and it happened. There was no way it wasn't going to happen, right? That's the big takeaway that we want to remember from this book is that God said, you are going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed by this army, and it's going to happen this way. And then this army showed up, and it happened this way, and they were destroyed just like God said. That's the takeaway is that what God says in this book will happen to you as the individual Christian, to the nation you live in, to the world. If God says it, it will happen. There is no way to avoid it. The Bible says in verse 13, the gates are wide open. As we learned in the previous weeks, the walls fell down and the enemy just marched right in. That's what it's talking about. There was nothing standing in their way. They just walked right in. In verse 14, 
in preparation of a siege, you will fill your cisterns with water. They may strengthen the city walls to withstand the battering rams, but their preparations are useless. They didn't, it didn't help. It didn't matter what they did. They were going down. In verse 15, the city will be burnt to the ground and left as bare as a field that has been stripped by locust. Have you ever seen locust? Now, I've never seen it personally, but I have watched enough documentaries and I have seen pictures and videos of locusts going through and devouring a field. It, it, there, there is no better description of a plague of God than locust going through and devouring a field. I don't know how long it takes, but I mean, there is nothing left. It, yeah, there, I mean, when you see a swarm of locusts fly in, you swear there are trillions of them. They darken the sun. And when they go into a field, I mean, yeah, you might as well have, have lit the field on fire. That's what remains afterward. It is insane. And, and we read about that as a description many times in the Bible, the locust. It was a, it was a plague in Egypt, but we, we read about that idea. And that is what God wants to, again, use as an analogy to show us what it's like when God decides you're done. This is what is going to remain when we wipe you out. Nothing. You're gonna, it's going to be like the locust in a field. All right, let's read verses 16 to 19. We'll be done with the chapter, and then we'll just talk a little bit about a couple neat things, and we'll be done with the book of Nahum. Verse 16, Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and flieth away. Thy crowned are as the locust, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria, thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise, thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thy, sorry, of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? God finishes the chapter with a question. <coughs> so in verse 16, uh, let's look at verse 16 and 17. The merchants and city officials are many, but they will all flee like the, uh, like the locust when the sun gets hot. So when you understand that this is something that the locust will do. They will feast, but when the sun comes out and it gets too hot, they will, that's when they take off and they're just gone. They want to find a, a cooler place uh, to reside. And God is explaining that the merchants and the city officials that were making all this money, they're like the locust in their numbers. Okay, the city was full of these guys. It was a great big city for commerce, but they left and just ran like the locusts did when the sun came out as soon as the Babylonians came. 
But you also have to understand, you have to keep in mind, the leadership does not escape. They just flee. They were still cut down by the Babylonians. No one survived. That's not technically true. We know several survived, but as slaves. But as far as, you know, people did not get away. Uh, the leadership in verse 18, the leadership of the nation will be killed and the people will be easy prey for the attackers. That's what the Bible is explaining. The shepherds slumber. The nobles dwell in the dust. So the leadership of the nation is destroyed. And then who is left? All the people and they are easy prey for uh, the Babylonians. And then in verse 19, the Bible says there is no coming back from this destruction. It says there is no healing of thy bruise. God says you're, there's, no, there's no rebuilding. You're not coming back from this. This is the nail in the coffin, so to speak. I believe God is saying that the city will, will never be rebuilt. And so far, it is currently the year 2022, and it has not been rebuilt. Nineveh has been a universal oppressor. Every nation that hears of the fall of Nineveh will rejoice. The last thing God says is, All that hear the brute of thee shall clap their hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. Every nation was affected by Nineveh. They were all taken advantage of by Nineveh. They were all hurt by Nineveh. They were all made to pay tribute to Nineveh. They all hated Nineveh. And every single person that heard that Nineveh was destroyed applauded. Everybody was thrilled that Nineveh was gone. So that is the end of the book of Nahum. Now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the prophecies that were fulfilled, and then we're just going to uh, go over a little bit, kind of uh, talk about the philosophy of God punishing a nation. And we have 14 minutes to do it if we're going to get out of here on time, so I'm going to move right along. We are going to cover 12 prophecies that we find in the book of Nahum, and we read about how the, these prophecies were fulfilled both in uh, the Bible and in secular history. Number one, the Assyrian fortresses surrounding the city would be easily captured. That is found in Nahum chapter 3, verse 12. And uh, the fortified towns in Nineveh's environs began to fall around 614 BC, including Tabris, uh, present-day uh, Sharif Khan, only a few miles northwest of Nineveh, and then Nineveh was destroyed in uh, 612. Uh, number two, the besieged Ninevites would prepare bricks and mortar for emergency defense walls. That's talked about in Nahum chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, and we read uh, in the history of Assyria um, uh, by Olmsted, uh, that to the south of the gate, the moat is still filled with fragments of stone and mud bricks from the walls heaped up when they were breached. Uh, the city gates would be destroyed. Uh, that is the third prophecy that's fulfilled in Nahum chapter 3, verse 13. Now we know that the main attack was directed from the northwest and the brunt uh, fell upon the uh, Hadamati gate at that corner. 
Within the gate are traces of counter wall raised by the inhabitants uh, in their last extremity. Um, that again is in the, um, these are all cited by different history books. This one again is the history of Assyria by Olmsted. So when that gate was being battered down, they were building brick walls behind it in hopes to stop or slow down um, the, the force that was coming in. Uh, number four, in the final hours of the attack, the Ninevites would be drunk. Nahum uh, chapter 1 verse 10 and chapter 3 verse 11. The Assyrian king distributed to his soldiers meats and liberal supplies of wine and provisions while the whole army was, um, was getting drunk. The friends of uh, Arbakes learned from some deserters of the slackness and drunkness which prevailed in the enemy's camp and made an unexpected attack by night. Number five, Nineveh would be destroyed by a flood. Uh, we read about that in Nahum chapter one, chapter two. Uh, in the third month of the siege, heavy rains caused the Tigris River to flood uh, part of the city and break down the walls. Uh, Xenophon referred to terrifying thunder from a rainstorm that was going on during that time associated with the city's capture. Uh, also, uh, the uh, Kasur River entering the city from the northwest at the Ninil Gate and running through the city in a southwest direction may have flooded because of heavy rains or the enemy may have destroyed uh, that gate. Uh, number six, Nineveh would be destroyed by fire. Archaeological excavations at Nineveh revealed charred wood and charcoal and ashes. Um, there was no question about the clear traces of burning uh, of the temple. Um, and also the palace of Sennacherib the king for a layer of ash about two inches thick lay clearly defined in places on the southeast side about the level of the Sargon pavement. And the, I can give you all the references. You can look this stuff up. Uh, the city's capture would be attended by a great massacre of people, Nahum 3.3. That's pretty obvious whenever you're going to lay siege to any city. Uh, in two battles fought on the plain before the city, the rebels defeated the Assyrians. So great was the multitude of the slain. Listen to this, okay? So great was the multitude of the slain that the flowing stream mingled with their blood changed its color for a considerable distance. Wow. Yeah. Eight, plundering and pillaging would accompany the overflow, uh, overthrow of the city. Again, that's pretty... Uh, common that is written in the Babylonian Chronicle. Great quantities of the spoil from the city beyond counting. They carried off the city. Uh, they turned into a mound and ruin heap. Uh, that is from the book Ancient Records of Assyria and Babylonia. When Nineveh would be captured, its people would try to escape. Um, Sardanapalus. Uh, uh, sent away his three sons and two daughters with much treasure into Paphlagonia to the governor of Cados, the most loyal of his subjects, uh, in an attempt to escape. The Ninevite officers would weaken and flee. That was in the Babylonian Chronicle. Um, the army of Assyria deserted, <coughs> ran away before the king. Nineveh's images and idols would be destroyed. Uh, the statue of the goddess Ishtar lay headless in the debris of Nineveh's ruins. So they dug that up and found it. So the statue of Ishtar, they broke the head off and left it there. Yes, Washington. Um, Richard, um, 
it was the west. So Nineveh, if this is the Tigris River, okay, Nineveh was over here on the west side. I'm sorry, the river was to the west of Nineveh. Nineveh sat on the east side of the Tigris River. Currently, Kabul is on the uh, west side of the Tigris River. In no, the army surrounded it, but it was this side. Th there were two and a half miles of wall, the western wall of Nineveh that bordered the river, ran two and a half miles long. That was the that was the wall, and I don't know how much of the wall. I would have to I'd have to look that up, but it was that wall that the river flooded and washed away the foundation of the wall and the wall collapsed. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. I mean that as soon as the wall falls, all the soldiers give up on wherever they're standing and they, you know, they're going in at that point. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure lots of people, I'm sure plenty of Babylonians died, you know, but yeah, who knows how it happened. I'll tell you what I, the more I study the Bible, the more I wish that Marty McFly and the DeLorean were real and I could get in that car and go back in time and see some of this stuff because it would have been something to, you know, witness. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, Back to the Future 2 where the DeLorean can fly so I can just hover above out of the, yeah, out of the danger. It's a great question. Totally off course, and we're going to focus on what we're talking about so we can get through this. Uh, the 12th uh, prophecy, Nineveh's destruction would be final, and that we read about in Nahum chapter 1, verse 9 and 14, and also in the very last verse of the book. Uh, now, many cities of ancient uh, Near East were rebuilt after being destroyed. Uh, some of those include Jerusalem and Samaria. They were sacked, they were destroyed, they were leveled, and then they were rebuilt. But Nineveh was different. Uh, you got to remember that there were many centuries where people thought that the city of Nineveh was a myth. They didn't think it was real because there were no archaeological remains. We never found it. Nobody saw it. It had been so long. They thought it was fictitious. In 1847, it was discovered, and most of the artifacts are in the British Museum of Natural History. You can go there today and, and see a lot of these. Um, <clears throat> but this last prophecy, Nahum said that the destruction would be final. It would never rise again. How would he know that? First of all, he said that 40 years prior to Nineveh being destroyed. And then number two, for 2,000 years, it was never rebuilt. It's still not rebuilt. How would he know that? Yeah. <laughs> Nahum was just passing on the message of God. And God said, I'm destroying the city, and this is the way it's going to work. Okay, so <clears throat> let's take a look at this idea, and we'll be, we'll be done. It's reasonably brief. Throughout the Bible, we see a familiar phrase come up, and that is, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that phrase, when read in context, is a declaration of lawlessness. People were not obeying God. God uh, they did that which they thought was right. 
it explains just how bad things were. People didn't care what God said. People didn't care what God, you know, commanded. Everyone did that which they thought was right in their own eyes. There was no fear of God. <clears throat> we're just going to do whatever we want. Now, this is a declaration of how bad things were. Um, here is what I want to kind of talk about and explain. The lessons we learn from the book of Nahum and the city of Nineveh, how can we apply them today? Hmm. The lessons we learn from the book of Nahum and the city of Nineveh, how can we apply them today? See here. Okay. Yep. You do it. You do what you done. You're going to get what you got. Here's the problem in America. And here's the disconnect as a country. We think back on our life and we think it's always going to be like that amount of time because that's all we've ever experienced. So things are going to be great. It's going to get better. It was good. It's been getting better. It's going to keep getting better. We struggle with the idea that God is just. Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. We are currently in trouble as America. Now, I had something I was going to write on the board, and it was too long, so I emailed it to everyone. So in your email are the notes of what I'm going to explain right now. And this is called The Cycle of Nations. And it was written by a Scottish historian named Sir Alexander Tyler. And you can open up your email and take a look. And if there's anyone you know, on YouTube or Spotify that wants to get notes like this, just email me and I'll add you to the list and you'll get stuff like this. So you'll have it in the future. The cycle of nations. So this historian studied different nations and they all go through a cycle. Nations have an origin, they rise, and then they fall. And that happens to every single one. One of the problems we have is we think we are immune from this, and we're not. The cycle of nations, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance. Tell me that is not the story of America. Oh, it gets bad. We, we, we crest the hill and start to go down. <clears throat> but think of that. We were in bondage. We were being oppressed. We declared our independence. We believed God would see us through. There was great courage. We got liberty. We got abundance. We made it through World War II and the Industrial Revolution. Everyone owned a car. Everyone had a job. Everyone was able to make a good living 
and have a better future that you could provide for your kids. The American dream was as real as we have ever heard or imagined. Then from abundance, we move to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy. What does apathy mean? Yep, I don't care. That's what apathy is. And if you go and ask anyone in America, what, what are the two biggest problems in America? Or you ask them, you know, what's America's problem? Ignorance or apathy? They'll say, I don't know and I don't care. And that's what it is. Ignorance is not knowing. Apathy is not caring. And that's where we are today. That's the problem with America as a whole. Not every single individual in America, but as a whole, that's what we're struggling with as a nation. From apathy to dependency, from dependency back again into bondage. That is, again, from Sir Alexander Tyler, who is a Scottish historian. You can look that up. It's very, he, the, the cycle of nations is it's very famous. Now, America is currently apathetic, ignorant, and dependent. Right now, 52% of U.S. households are on some form of government assistance. Now, that doesn't mean that their whole life is supported by the government, but what it does mean is that the government is involved with some form of assistance. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a guy that is against government assistance, but I can show you the way it's supposed to work, and maybe if we have a second, I'll go over it just to kind of get it on record when I announce my candidacy for president in a year or two. I'm, I'm also, I'm not taking up uh, the welfare state, but I'm also looking like uh, 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 SSL benefits, Social Security, uh, federal retirement. Okay, Louie. Well, now, federal retirement, those are things you worked for and earned. So those are just entitlements. These are entitlements. And... This number comes from an article in Forbes magazine dated 2014. So, so where is it today? It's north of that number. I don't know how much, but you can, you can do your own homework. Here's the point. This is a very dangerous position for America to be in because as soon as we get to a point where we are dependent then what that means is America moves into, instead of working for a living, we move into a position of voting for a living. Because if our lifestyle is supported by the government, then don't we want to vote in politicians who promise to give us more? You got it. So Santa Claus gets elected, and then that number goes north. And then Santa Claus gets elected again, because we all like getting stuff. The problem is this cannot go on forever. Now, just because we're on the topic, okay, let's go over the idea. That's a cart. Yeah. That's a horse. Happy little trees. 
Now, imagine that this, and Wash, I don't know if I'm going to be off camera here, but I'm going to try to do this. Imagine that there are 10 horses pulling an empty cart. Now, the cart's not technically empty because we have to be pulling something. Otherwise, why do we have 10 horses? So there's an amount of money that needs to go into the government to supply what it needs. So the horses are pulling that. We're all doing our part to put in the work to make this machine move forward. So then what happens is one of those 10 horses gets injured. And now the poor little horse no longer can pull the cart. So what do we do? We unhitch the horse, we throw him in the cart, and we move forward. Now, can nine horses pull that one horse along with the load? Of course it can. It's going to be a little harder, but it can do it. The goal is the horse gets better, and we put him back out in front, and he's pulling again. Well, what happens when two horses get injured and we throw them into the cart? Can eight horses pull the load and the two horses? Yeah, it's harder again. What if we throw three horses in there and seven are pulling? You see, the point is that at, at some point, there's too many horses in the cart. This is great. I don't want to get out of here. Folks, the, uh, the whole idea of the cart is to help the injured horse. Do you understand? Horses are going to get injured from time to time. That's going to happen. The problem is horses that are perfectly healthy are getting in the cart. Well, at some point, the ratio causes it to fail. When you have nine horses in the cart and you have one horse pulling, it comes to a stop. Somewhere along the way, it doesn't work out. And what we have set up in this country is a level of dependency. So all of a sudden, those horses are voting to stay in the cart and let someone else pull. It's a mess, and the credit card bill is going to come due. Now, The financial position our country is in is bad, but the greater issue in America is our spiritual bankruptcy. That's the problem. You're not going to hear that talked about on a lot of the news stations. You're going to hear about politics. You're going to hear about finances. You're going to hear about a lot of different issues, security. And I'm not saying they're not real problems because they are. But that's not what's going to fix America. We are very close to receiving a massive judgment from God. I'm going to say that again because people don't think about this and people don't believe that it can happen to us. We, America, are very close to receiving a massive judgment from God. That judgment is going to come in a form that should be familiar to all of us. Now, let me ask you this. How did God punish countries in the Bible? <clears throat> not individual nations. Or I'm sorry, not individual people. Entire nations. Okay, and how did he wipe them out? Who did God use? God used their 
enemies. Isn't that what we saw in the Bible? When God needed to judge a nation, whether it was Israel, whether it was Assyria, God used the enemies of those nations to bring judgment. When we look at Bible prophecy, which is everything in the Bible talking about what's going to happen from today forward, when we look at the end times, all the major players are clearly identified. And America is absent. In end times Bible prophecy, America is not talked about. Some people disagree with that. We're not there. America's problems are not political or financial. Political and financial problems are symptoms of our real problem. We are spiritually bankrupt. What America needs more than anything is something that you and I can provide. America needs a grassroots movement (coughs) of revival. We, as a spiritually bankrupt nation, need to take our Bible seriously. We need to seriously, as Christians, take the studying of our Bible seriously. I believe that we as Christians need to start a Bible study. Invite four of our friends. Pick a night of the week. I'd suggest not doing Fridays. We're already busy, but pick an evening where you can get together and try to influence people in your sphere, in your life, for God. Help them to learn the Bible. If you don't know what to teach them, you can literally teach them what we went over last Friday. It's not complicated. Do you understand how many Bible commentaries I have? There's not a lot that I teach that's really original from Patrick Hayes. I lean on great preachers and Bible theologians before me when I study. I hate to say it, I just ain't that smart. Nowadays, it is so easy to be a Bible scholar. Every single one of these Bible commentaries can be found on one website, all for free. They're all, <laughs> there are a never-ending series of videos. Any of us can do something to move forward the cause of Christ and try to get people interested in the Bible and studying the Bible, and we can affect somebody. Even if it's not a group of a half dozen or a dozen folks, maybe it's one person in our life that we study the Bible with one day a week over coffee in the morning. It doesn't matter. But what we need to do is we need to be serious about studying the Bible taking God's word seriously in our own lives, and we can, we can literally change America. We find this idea 
in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Please turn with me to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If <coughs> we don't learn anything else tonight, I hope you learn what this verse says. God appeared to King Solomon, and he explained what was necessary to save a nation. He gave a recipe for saving a nation. Second Chronicles 7.14, God says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God says, if you do four things, then I'll do three. It's that simple. Now, it starts with, if my people. Okay, so how many here are believers? Okay, about 75%. Okay, that's not bad. Okay. I was counting the number of people that raised their hand. We had a few that didn't. That's okay. I know you are. <laughs> it's always funny to ask, the, to ask these questions. Okay, now remember, if my people, which are called by my name, called by my name, do you know that that means someone else is calling you a Christian? It's not you calling you a Christian. Someone else is accusing you of being a Christian. Well, keep in mind, that, may, <clears throat> that doesn't include everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus. There are plenty who are undercover Christians. If you were arrested and charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Yeah. We'd hope there'd be an overwhelming amount of evidence. People coming out of the woodwork, everyone we know, saying that I've seen that guy pray constantly. That guy talks to me about the Bible, right? If my people who are called by my name. Now, what's important is God doesn't ask the politicians to do this. He doesn't ask the godless pagans to do this. God asks you and I to do it, and that's all it'll take to save America. And we have to do four things. Humble. Humble ourselves. We all know how to do that, right? We humble ourselves. We have to pray. We know how to do that. Now, keep in mind, we have to take these things seriously. And if we're not doing it the way God wants, we need to get on his plan. Okay, praying to God is not 10 seconds before my meals and that's it. I think it's great that we pray before our meals. I'm not saying to stop that, but that's not what God's talking about. We need to take prayer seriously. We need to humble ourselves seriously before God. Seek my face. Do you want to know the best way I can explain seeking God's face? <coughs> Wayne, in your life, when you met a girl that you liked and you were in the process of falling in love, did you want to spend time with her? Did you want to learn things about her? Did you want to talk to her? 
Did you want to hear her talk to you? You wanted to spend time with that person. You wanted to seek their face. When you are falling in love with someone, that is what God's talking about when he says, seek my face. All of those actions, all of those ideas is what we want to have for God. Not because I'm forced to, not because, yeah, this is my duty as a Christian, I got to punch the clock. We want to seek God's face. And then what's the last one? This is the tough one. Turn from our wicked ways. It's the hardest one. That's why God put it last. We have to find the spots in the Bible that disagree with my life, and I got to change them. God says, if you'll do four things, I'll do three. Can you believe that me as a little old Christian can change America? And none of this says vote for the right person. I try to do that. But let's face it, if, if, if voting really made a difference, they'd make it illegal. <laughs> the way I'm going to change America, the way I'm going to change the world, is to try to change the spiritual, bankrupt position of America. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do my best. Everyone's best is different. The way we all do it is going to be different. I always recommend, I've had people ask me after I teach a message like this, Patrick, what should I do? I don't know. But I promise you, if you ask God, he will show you. In this process of humbling yourselves and praying and seeking his face, somewhere in the praying and seeking his face stage, he'll start answering those prayers and show you what direction you want, he wants you to do something in. But whatever that is, that's the way you go. And then God says he's going to hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our land. I truly believe that this plan still works today. This plan will work for America. Do you know that this idea was used by King Josiah in the southern kingdom of Judah? And God said, I will not destroy Judah for this many years because of what you did. Do you know that this idea was used by King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king of Nineveh, when Jonah showed up? And God said to the most wicked nation in the history of the world, I will spare you. This is not just a formula for King Solomon and God talking to him about the nation of Israel. Although the idea can be used denotatively for King Solomon and the nation of Israel, it can also be used connotatively for all of us who are reading this. And we see that the formula works and has worked in other times in other countries. And it can be done today. Now, I know there's only less than a dozen of us here tonight. We had monsoon-like rains. I don't know about everyone else, but I saw animals marching two by two down G Road earlier today 
it was raining so hard. Okay, I didn't expect a great turnout tonight, but I am hoping that someone, not only here, okay, but also, you know, at home or someday on a podcast, hears this message and understands that any one of us can be used by God in a great way to change a nation. If you want to read a story about it, go to 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 21, 22, 23, somewhere in there, about King Josiah. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. And you can see this, how this plays out, and God changes his mind about the destruction of the nation of Israel and the city Jerusalem. Okay, Washington, you got a question. I don't know. You're asking a pretty specific hypothetical. Okay, but what I do know is that if we, if God's people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked, uh, seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, then God will heal the land. I'm not saying that America is going to be healed because of one person doing this, but I do know that whatever it takes to change America will not start without one person doing it. That's where, how do you eat an elephant, Wash? Louie? One bite at a time. MacArthur? Yep. God won't affect, like, God won't try to affect the people who, um, who aren't, like, making the land horrible or, like, sinning much. Or... I'm not sure what you're asking. <clears throat> Think it over and try again in a minute. But if nobody tries to save the land, then we're doomed. And what I'm saying is we don't have to be. But America is on the verge of being wiped out. And I'm not saying that everyone's dead and the land is burnt to the ground. <clears throat> what I'm saying is we'll be made insignificant. Yep. Who, who are America's two greatest enemies? China and Russia. And who are we this close to nuclear war with right now? Russia. Russia. People, a lot of folks don't want to admit that or think about that, but that's how close we are. Russia has already determined that the assassination attempt on, I can't remember the fella's name, they got his daughter instead of him when they blew up his car, they already said, if we can prove that it's America or Ukraine, then that's reason enough for us to use uh, nuclear weapons when they declare war. I'm just saying, it is ugly right now. And the Cuban Missile Crisis went our way, not 100%. You know, they got, they ended up with, you know, um, communism in Cuba. Okay. But the Cuban Missile Crisis is pretty close to where we are right now. It, for those of you, 
that are teenagers just ignore everything I'm saying. I, I understand you have no concept of what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that America is in, in trouble. In the cycle of nations, we are dependent and we are one step away from being in bondage again. So keep in mind, <clears throat> if nothing else, I just ask you to go home and consider this verse and be prayerful about it and see what you need to do to change in your life to help get on the team and be a part of it. Some people might already be doing all this. That's great. All I'm saying is we need more people on the Second Chronicles 714 team if we're going to save America. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be out of here. Lord, we love you greatly. We've been, we're going late. And my wife's give, looking at me, wondering when we're going to get out of here because we're already like 25 minutes past. Please, God, bless our weekend. Help us to be more like you and less like us. Help us to do your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.